Hello, and welcome to the Career Builders Podcast. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Lisa Pekosek. Today, we're joined by Jay Goslin, who is a character-based career and leadership facilitator and coach. He's the founder of Mentor You and the Discover Your program, and his mission is to help people and organizations thrive. The insights Jay has gathered from working with over 15,000 professionals and students in the past 10 years, as well as his research and his own life experiences, enable him to deliver relevant, engaging, and inspiring leadership and career development programming. Jay says his greatest strength is his ability to connect authentically and with all different types of people and to create a safe and collaborative space to do honest, meaningful work. Jay, welcome to the Career Builders Podcast. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Mike. And thanks for having me on, Lisa. Pleasure to have you. Can you tell us a bit more about your story so far? You've got a great TED Talk that's out there, but I'm, I'd love to hear it straight from, from the horse's mouth, per se. Yeah. So, um, I mean, there's, there's many, there are many things to tell, but I guess I'd start by saying that, um, I recognized, even though I didn't know the language, I recognized pretty early on that I was extremely privileged. Uh, like, you know, maybe in my early teen years and I, I came to understand pretty quickly that, um, just given the way I look and where I was born and the people that were around me and the education I had access to, I was a very lucky person. And, uh, so that's always kind of been, ingrained deeply in me that I, I knew that I needed to give back. I just didn't always understand what that meant. And I, I'm really fortunate now to uh, have been able to identify at least part of the way that I want to give back in my lifetime. But I did a lot of things uh, over the course of my youth and, um, and my early career. So to keep it fairly brief, I went to boarding school in the States for a couple of years. I had a wonderful opportunity to be in classes with very intelligent, generous people. And we had, you know, eight to 10 people in a class and our, our actual classroom desks was one desk. It was a huge oak table that we all sat around. We used something oh. called the Harkness method. So it was pretty amazing. And, uh, I, I learned a lot in that experience. And then I went to Queens university. I <laughs> closed my eyes and put my finger on a map of different courses and it landed on economics and I ended up doing economics and political science was pretty much uninterested in 90% of the content that I covered in those courses and, and others. I was capable and, and well-trained and smart enough, so I got through it with about a probably 69.5 average in the end um, after four years. Felt totally, totally unfulfilled. Like I remember very crystal clear the day of graduation or convocation, and I, everyone else was so excited and I just felt kind of embarrassed. I'm embarrassed because I was there and we were celebrating like this achievement and I felt like it was not at all an achievement for me. It was embarrassing the way I kind of like dragged myself through that. But uh, I made a lot of really good friendships and, and had great experiences outside of the classroom largely. I, I knew I didn't want to get a job in either economics or political science at that point uh, or anything that required any kind of major commitment, to be honest. So I traveled a bit out west. I ended up getting a job on cruise ships where I became a cruise director. I did that for three years. I traveled all over the world. It was amazing. I learned way more in those three years than I ever did in uh, four years of university studies. And then uh, technically kind of got fired, actually, uh, because I was someone who pushed the envelope pretty hard. And I, I was rebellious. And I uh, disagreed a little bit with the management of the company <laughs> and uh, wasn't invited back for a next contract decided to move on uh, rather than going to another cruise line. I went to work at the Olympics in Vancouver. 
So I was the um, venue manager for event services at the Richmond Olympic Oval. Cool. I was incredibly fortunate to see Claire Hughes. I don't know, are, are either of you Olympics fans? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Very neat. So I was there when Claire broke the record for the most uh, medals combined between summer and winter. I was about 30 feet away from her. I still get chills when I think about it. It was, it was such that a cool experience. That is so cool. Amazing. Yeah, that was amazing. And I did that for two years and I learned very, uh, very quickly <laughs> at the beginning of two years that uh, I'm an athlete and I, I play like, college hockey and I play a lot of sports. I love playing sports. I do not like organizing them. <laughs> and I'm sure that you both talk to a lot of young people who, who have similar kind of uh, dichotomies in terms of what they, they, they like to do something and they think that projects directly into a career. And I learned quickly that that's not the case for me, but it was a wonderful experience. I met all kinds of awesome people, did some more traveling. And then I moved to Ottawa with the hope of actually just re-integrating um, with a bunch of my friends that I had met through cruise ships. And then we were going to buy a business, a friend of mine and I, we never bought the business. And then I ended up getting a job at the University of Ottawa, where I would say a lot of the, the skills and interests that I had started to congeal and, and take form because I, I met 12,000 students. I was doing recruiting for the university for a specific program. So I met all these high school students and I was like completely and utterly heartbroken by the conversations I had day after day with them. They would show up to the information booth at a, at a fair and as I alluded to in the, the TEDx talk that I gave, I just would hear such desperation and anxiety and overwhelm and lack of purpose. And, you know, everyone was following someone else's idea of what they wanted for them. And they would literally break down in tears often. And um, they wouldn't even be able to name, actually, if you push them, what they were interested in. They could very easily rhyme off some program at a university that they they said they wanted to do and they wouldn't, they would rarely be able to really describe what that program was. And then if you push them to say, what do you like to do outside of school and on the weekends, nine times out of 10, they literally would just straight face. They would not be able to answer because they've been not, they're not, uh, were not asked often and they never thought about it. So that was really heartbreaking for me. And that's when I went back to school to study psychology. And I, I kind of envisioned that I'd be helping young people in a kind of a coaching or counseling role. And uh, then I worked at the co-op office for two and a half years and I met 500 employers and through these, um, so I would liaise with the employers uh, who were hiring our students. And we did these midterm evaluations for the students where I would go in and I would chat with the students, see how things were going and chat with the employer. And in those conversations, I took it upon myself out of curiosity to go beyond and ask, you know, what these employers were looking for, what, what they hoped to be, to find in terms of skills and attitudes in, in these young people and what they were missing. And time and time again, regardless of the sector or the field or profession, the same things came up every time. Intellectual curiosity, I would say was number one. This is, you know, you know, quote unquote, white collar type work, but that was in, intellectual curiosity was the thing that everybody said was most important generally. Communication skills, of course, Things uh, that are character-driven like uh, dependability, honesty, uh, work ethic, ability to collaborate with others, ability to solve your own problems and ask good questions. None of this, of course, was rocket science, and it's exactly what the research shows you know, employers are looking for. But unfortunately, that message I didn't feel was getting through to young people. They still thought it was all about the piece of paper in their hands. So that's a really long way of describing that one day, one night I was trying to sleep and in my brain, all these things just kind of meshed. And I decided that we would start some programming that would help students better understand who they are and also build the skills that were most important for them in their, in their lives. And that's when uh, my company, MentorU, was, 
was birthed and then um, the discover your program which was the, the purposeful gap year program that we initiated that program took shape in the coming months as well very neat wow so really like this beautiful progression of of events and activities that i probably at some to some degree gave data to you in terms of pointing you in a direction of like oh here's a great need in the world that I'm really attracted to and how can I solve it? Yeah, I, that, the best way that I've found to describe it was that like throughout, even I don't know when it started, but uh, you know, at an age when people start to generally think about life after high school or, or college or university, I felt like I was in a tunnel and it was a very long tunnel and uh, it was very dark where I was, but I, in the very far distance, there was a light and it was hazy and there, you could not make out what any kind of shape was but I could see that it was there and I understood that I had to keep gathering different skills and pursuing things that I was interested in. And um, it was certainly not easy always, uh, way easier for me, like I said, because of my privilege, but my friends were making twice as much money as I, through my twenties, everybody was climbing the ladders and I was jumping mm -hmm. around puddle to puddle, trying on different hats and learning and, and being uh, learning about humility because I I would go from the top of the chain to the bottom of the chain in a new role. And literally I make the same amount of money now that I did when I was 24 years old. Hmm. Um, that'll probably change soon enough, but uh, it's really interesting to see now I'm 30, almost 39. And my friends have been making a lot of money for a long time when we talk and when they see how excited I get about working, I see the, um, the envy in their face and sometimes they flat out say like i would i would give up half my salary easily to do to be able to enjoy what i do as much as you do so it's yeah. been an interesting journey how do you feel like those experiences going from job and, and kind of finding that humility has helped you in creating the mentor you and discover your programs in so many ways um you know the humility is a big one especially for me it's that it's definitely not at the top of my strengths list I'm not someone who's uh, naturally overly humble, but um, I'm working on it always. But I found that it enabled me to really understand how to learn much mm -hmm. better. And what I find fascinating, and again, I say this with humility, but I, I know thousands of teachers as I suspect um, you do as well. And it blows my mind in the world as of today, I still, and we go to fairs where there are gap year programs promoted and I'm in schools all the time. And I still have yet to find a program that matches what we do at Discoverer in terms of the, the shape that it takes and the content that we cover and the way that we do things. And I'm blown away because I meet all these very intelligent teachers in schools everywhere. And what I kind of came to realize that at a, and I, cause I asked myself, people know that they're and university professors, they see the mental health, the distress on campuses, everybody understands the skills are not necessarily aligned to what employers want. And yet it seems as though no one's really doing anything, not in the way we are. And I wondered about that for, for so long. And I think a big part of what enabled me to found this is because of these varied experiences that I had. And I did a lot of what's known as interleaving. I don't know if um, you're both familiar with that term, but it means learning skills and knowledge and applying it to um, disparate domains. Mm -hmm. So uh, that different perspective is in today's world, hugely helpful to people, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of innovation and creativity. Yeah. So the combination of kind of formal education I had, personal experience, life experience, all those things lend themselves better to starting something new versus delivering the same model of education that's been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. So th those, all those, <laughs> many, many lessons, but that's the main one is that 
I built a broad array of different skills and knowledge, and that's uh, been very helpful in, in doing what we do. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about the uniqueness of your program? Yeah, it's um, it's a hard one to to deliver in a in a minute or two. But the Discover Your uh, program specifically was founded four years ago. We're in our fourth year now, and basically the way the program works it's a it's a one year what we call career and leadership development certificate, and it involves a number of components. Essentially, it's kind of a mashup of what a lot of people might traditionally think about doing on a gap year, but they'll choose one or two or three of these things. So the, essentially, it's an experiential model where the students work most of the week. Um, generally, they work for money because they want the cash, and we want them to learn how to manage that. But some of them want to do something specific, and that's a volunteer thing, and that's fine as well. But from September until the end of January and from March until the summer, they are meant to be working about 30 hours a week. It varies from student to student, but they're working. We want them to be in a workplace learning how to build those skills and interact effectively and be a successful employee. And then one day every week, basically over the course of the year, we come together for these, uh, what we call discovery days. And that's where we help them build all these crucial skills, things like effective communication, resilience, uh, intercultural awareness, diversity and inclusion, personal financial management, uh, building psychological safety, building trusting relationships, and uh, you know, critical thinking, entrepreneurship, all the stuff that is really kind of very relevant today and that no one quite literally has ever actually <laughs> taught them about. And we do all these, so people call them life skills, I call them career and life uh, skills. And we do that once a week and they meet hundreds of amazing mentors over the course of the year. They each get a personal coach and um, they have a lot of small group discussions. So we have one facilitator for every five to six students and they really get into depth um, you know, in what's, what's going on in their lives, what they need help with, what's going well. And um, the vulnerability and honesty in those, in our environment, I, I work with hundreds of groups. I also do corporate work and I work with many, many different teams. I'm very lucky to do that. And I've yet to come across an environment anywhere, really, uh, whereby people feel so comfortable being who they truly are and sharing their actual fears and concerns and that's what our students say as well. We, I always tell people we could scrap all the, all the stuff that we do, all the content, and they'd still get 75% of the benefit just by being there in this environment that we initially spark and that they actually uh, build upon and create themselves after they know how to do that. And it's mm -hmm. a really, really cool thing. That's really amazing. Mm -hmm. And I wish something like that had been around when I was coming out of school. It seems like a really long time ago. Um, in your TED talk, you mentioned that there are all these irrational fears surrounding why someone shouldn't do a gap year coming out of high school. And I'll, I'll get to where I'm going on this in a second, but those fears, first off, can you talk a bit about them, but can we also look at how they might still be present in people further down the line after university, even into the beginning of someone's career? Person, intuitively, I think they're there still. Yeah, I agree. And are, do you mean, just to clarify, do you mean yeah. kind of with respect to their careers that they're in or with respect to taking time off generally? Uh, with respect to the, the career direction that they're, they're on right now and whether or not this is actually the path that they wanted to go on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. I was uh, giving a guest lecture last night at the University of Ottawa and the students, we chatted about all these things. And it's fascinating the degree to which 
the most of the content that we cover at Mentor You and Discover Year is very simple intellectually for people to grasp. And almost 100% of people do that quickly. And very few, <laughs> the inverted number is, are the number of people who actually implement the things that they need to do to overcome these barriers. Mm -hmm. So um, career anchoring is the term that I use. I don't know if you, you all use similar language, but when people are embedded in something and they've told people that that's what they're going to do and they, uh, they want to ride out that belief, they want to show people that they were, they're not a quitter and that they don't want to waste, quote unquote, one of my least favorite things, waste my education. Uh, on on all the time and money I spent on this. So I believe they're very deep-seated. I, I agree with you 100%. They, they don't go away very easily. And um, I'm, I'm always fascinated by the people in our network, certainly that the mentors in Discovery, are there, they've been selected because they've had the courage to do things differently mm -hmm. and, to, to, and, and they're lifelong learners and they're generous. So it's been fascinating for me to kind of ponder what is different about those people? The people that choose at 30 to go back to school or at 45, they start their own company when they have a family to feed. You know, what are the factors? There's many, there are many, but uh, I agree with you that it sticks around. It's, it's a tough one to break for a lot of people. That, that belief that if I don't do this now or if I do something different, I'm gonna be a failure or I'm not gonna be able to feed my family or whatever the case is. And I can relate to that. I went down that path in accounting for almost 10 years and it was, really, really tough decision. It took probably almost two years to really finally say, yes, I'm, I'm officially doing this because of everything that you just said. So I can mm. definitely relate to that. Yeah. And I, you know what, Lisa, I, I think this is something, what I've recognized in the last little while in my life is that I, it's not a central focus right now. I think it's embedded into all the stuff that we do at Mentor You and Discover You, but I feel a stronger and stronger urge to find a way that I can help uh, women specifically and girls because I mean, actually, to be very honest, there were times certainly when I look back, I, I could have been much nicer to uh, girls and, and women when I was growing up and, and learning things. But not that I was a jerk, but I just knowing what I know now, I would have done done things differently in some cases. Sure. But, but I think it's it's important that people understand that uh, this is from the research that I that I look at as well as my own personal experiences in many conversations with professionals especially and women have such a more difficult time in the world that we live in for so many reasons and the the beliefs that they carry and the things that are projected onto them and that uh, in some in some cases they project onto themselves so i think it's just important that people understand that that it, it yeah. really is generally speaking i believe much harder on on average for women to to make these changes so i think we need to support them maybe even more if that's fair yeah. in doing it because there's so many different pressures uh, on them, but good yeah, for you. That makes sense. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. yeah it, it makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Can I just get really quick clarification on your own um, career story in terms of going back to school? Did you study psychology full time when you were 30? No, actually. So I was, again, very lucky. I worked at the University of Ottawa. You can go to do courses for free. So I just started dabbling. I knew I wanted to go into this counseling program, which by the way, I, I dropped, I never completed, mm -hmm. um, did the coursework and then, and then dropped out. But the, I knew I needed these upgrades or, or equivalencies in, in psychology. So I was able to go to school for free. I did one course at a time for you know a year and a half or so really just very interesting stuff. Cool. Um, and then I went uh, part-time again for my master's for a couple of years. But I think it's worth noting that in my first year at Queens, in an auditorium of 800 people in Psych 101, 
I absolutely hated it. And I probably had a 66% average in that course in the, over the span of the year. Mm. And I find a lot of young people that I meet, they, and, and older people as well, they cast away ideas and concepts and subject matter that they, they have one experience with it and they cast away the subject matter because it was a, not a good teacher, because they were in the wrong place in the wrong time in their life, because the setting wasn't right for them. So, um, because the brain needs to make those decisions, but I like looking back, I think it's ludicrous, but the science of Pavlov's dog is not interesting to me. And that's kind of what you cover in that course. Uh, what's more interesting to me is why people do what they do. And we didn't really get into that in first year. So I think that's just anybody who's younger out there. Um, that's just kind of my cautionary tale to say, really think, step back and think like, what is it about something that you dislike or what is it about that thing that you like? Uh, before you really make decisions about it because there's so many factors at play, but usually we want to make these decisions quickly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. One of the things that I'm kind of trying to explore here is after all the experiences you went through in your twenties, you started to find, it sounds like you started to find yourself this mission that you wanted to fulfill. And at what point did it become really clear that that was the action that you needed to, to take and, and go pursue? That's a really interesting question. I think there's, there are two parts. There was a part where something deep inside of me made it very clear that I needed to do something, but the evolution of my business and the work that I do now has mm -hmm. changed quite a bit since I initially conceived of this idea. The initial conception was much going to be much more kind of one-on-one -on -one work. And now I've, uh, it's evolved to a lot more group facilitation and, and training and that kind of thing. And, so, but I, I knew deep down when I was probably early thirties, I guess it was after I'd started studying psychology. And then it was while I was working at the university and seeing what I saw. And it was really um, fascinating too, because for me, I, I think I have friends who are entrepreneurs and, and they knew since they were five years old, they did not want to work for anyone else. And they only did that so that they could build skills and make money until they had their own company. And my father has a small business and I, uh, the way I interpreted his experience was that it wasn't for me because I felt that I was a risk averse person. This is as simple as it gets in my brain. When I was a teenager and in my twenties, I just felt like it was almost unbelievable to me to think that I could have my own business because of what I saw him go through and the ups and downs. And what I, what I realize now is that I'm uh, financially risk averse, but I'm yeah. emotionally wide open <laughs> and I take risks all the time which is more important, I think, for an entrepreneur to understand that you're willing to take those emotional risks. So that was it. It was, it was like, I was never going to be an entrepreneur. And then all of a sudden this idea sparked in my brain and it was, I can't even imagine yeah. any other way at cool. this point. So on, on the gap year side of things, it's interesting because recently a few of my clients who are in the 40 to 65 range are thinking about taking a bit of a gap year themselves kind of leaving the job that they've been doing for the last 25, 30 years and taking some time to really figure out what is going on for them and what it looks like in the future. So from your experience with the students who have gone through your gap year program, what are some of the insights that people have come out of it with? That's an excellent question. And I think, you know, to, to speak to your client's experience, what I, a bit of a side tale here before I actually answer your question. When I was, when I moved to Ottawa, I was unemployed for about six months. I had finished up my work at Vancouver. We had traveled a bit uh, with my partner at the time through South America. And then I landed in Ottawa, no job, just knew I wanted to be in Ottawa. And uh, six months or eight months, I was unemployed. A few of my friends were as well. But 
in retrospect, in the moment, of course, you wake up every day and you go on to the job search boards and you're grunting and groaning and modifying your resume and it sucks. It sucks. <laughs> but I also learned how to swim properly mm. in that six months. I learned how to do yoga and breathe. Like literally just the, I didn't know how to breathe before that. And I, I still don't know if I wasn't unemployed in, in this gap time, unintended gap time, if I would know how to do these things that serve me well every day. So um, I think oftentimes people that have those experiences, they don't intend to, to have them, but they are hugely beneficial. Just the time mm -hmm. and space to, and I always think about the professionals I work with and the leaders and the managers and uh, like I'm bringing information to them to share and I'm learning from them and all these exercises and exploratory things that we do, like it's a full-time job if you really want to understand yourself on that level and build the skills to relate. So I think people should be doing this um, at any stage of their life. It's harder at some than others, mm -hmm. but the the most important things that our students, so 100% of our students in our exit surveys in four years, 100% of them say, I absolutely am much more self-confident and I know myself uh, much better than I did before. But the things they say are, um, so in fact, one student this year was, um, he was in rehab for most of grade 10 and grade 11. He joined our program, he was still 17 years old. He uh, has had personal challenges in his life that I won't get into here, but, you know, a difficult path. And he said when we were halfway through this year, when we asked our students one day, we asked them to write down why they come to our sessions every Wednesday. And he said, I honestly think this program is changing my life um, and, and it's the environment. And they never before, very rarely have our students, so we, we intentionally um, try to recruit a diverse group of people. And at one table, at any one time, you might have a collection of people where one is, you know, the traditional jock in school is a popular kid and, you know, lots of confidence, maybe a learning challenge or something of the sort. One person who is gay, one person who is unsure of their gender orientation, one person who was at the, the food bank last week because they um, don't have enough to eat at home. And, you know, these people have conversations that they tell us all the time. I've never told anybody. Like, that's a very common thing in our group. It's, it, we border on, on therapy. It's education, but it really comes right up against therapy. And so that's what I think all of them they all say that, and, and I feel from them, that they just have such a greater appreciation for not only tolerating differences in people, but embracing them because they see the value mm -hmm. in their own lives and in the way they feel and the way the world operates when people actually seek out working with people who are different than them. Because yeah. most people don't have that experience in, in high school, certainly. Um, even as hard as some of the schools may try, people are naturally going to be inclined to group with people that are more similar to them. Yeah. So it's really fascinating to see how, how much, and just being able to ask better questions to people and, and explore their curiosity versus doing things because they think they have to. Yeah. Those are some of the, the most fundamental things that they leave with. Wow. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting too, because I think that, that those differing perspectives and the ability to kind of open your mind and be open to those types of conversations, once you get to know somebody on that level, it's really hard to see them as anything other than human. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> the students often make fun of me because of the number of times we use the word empathy in, uh, in our sessions. That goes for the professional work that I do as well with, with uh, corporate clients. Um, 
And I think that the world needs a major dose of empathy uh, mm -hmm. in the world that we live in today. And I think it's impossible for someone to understand the value and power of really listening actively and empathetically to people until they've done that a number of times. And for myself, I was a terrible listener uh, generally mm -hmm. when I was younger, as most people are, but I might have even been worse than most. And then I, uh, through this pro counseling program, I started to really understand how valuable listening is and, and how that reorients your relationship with people when you ask good questions and you really listen to them. Mm -hmm. And it was mind blowing. I was sitting on a plane. I remember this lady was sitting, I was going up to the Yukon and this lady was sitting beside me. She was in education. So I, and I am a curious person. I just didn't always know how to ask the questions properly and nor did I always want to listen. But for about 45 minutes, I just asked her a question. It was fascinating. She was telling me about all the educational challenges in you know, small remote villages in the Yukon where you have the, all these cultural differences. And it was fascinating. And trying to fit them into the kind of the Western, uh, typical Western education system. And so I asked her a question and a question and a question. And then um, you could see that. I could feel she was just excited that someone was interested in what she does. And then after about 45 minutes, she finally asked me you know, what I did. And I told her, and in, I, I right away could see that most people, when I tell them what I do, it's kind of confusing. And they're like, oh, I don't understand this. I'm going to run away. And she was just question after question on her end. And, and so it was really, I'll never forget that. That was the first time I really felt the power of, of actually caring and being interested in what people have to say. Wow. Yeah. That's powerful. <laughs> that um, that kind of sparks in me a memory of a talk that I heard last spring. I don't know if you've ever heard of Ned Hallowell. He's a really famous psychologist in the US who works around a whole bunch of different, a uh, lot of the time adolescent um, challenges that, that come out of early childhood disruption. And I'm gonna blow a little bit of the terminology on that. But basically what he said was that to him, after all of his years of work, he's written a bunch of books, he's really famous in his space, said that the cure to a lot of the mental health issues that we see either in young people or even people who are, are older and in their careers and are just on paper supposedly you know more capable of taking care of themselves he said it's about connection that would that would cure everything there hasn't been a case in my career he said that couldn't be helped through increased human connection and it really sounds like for you that's what you discovered on that flight yeah i 100 percent agree and one of the things that i find fascinating one of the central elements of uh, the work that i do both with our discovery students and with um, professionals is centered around carl rogers uh, his humanistic approach to counseling and uh you know i always tell people when they're surprised that i dropped out of my master's you know, without the letters. And I, I never cared about that anyway. I didn't, I didn't really need the letters for what I wanted to do. But I, there are three or four fundamental things that I learned that seem kind of small, but it took many years to really compute how important they were. So for anyone that's listening, that's not familiar, Carl, Carl Rogers is one of the founders of humanistic or person-centered therapy. And in my first year doing my master's, uh, the course in, in counseling theories that I took, I studied Carl Rogers and he came up with, through his research and his own experience as a, as a counselor, he came up with this list of six conditions that need to be met in order to build effective mm -hmm. interpersonal trust. So his work was all about the connection. So the belief under humanistic counseling theory is that the connection is paramount. That's the most important thing that essentially people have the answers to their own problems or challenges, but they need a, a, 
an active partner to bounce things off of and to ask them good questions, essentially. So these six conditions that he identified as being essential to build interpersonal trust have since been um, reshaped a little bit. And there are three of those six that essentially every psychologist, I learned, every psychologist in the world agrees are required to build trust, interpersonal trust. Those three things are empathy, what he called unconditional positive regard. I think the layperson term is non-judgment and genuineness. Mm-hmm. Empathy, non-judgment, and genuineness. And I have since learned, since learning that theory, and I work with lots of corporate groups and professionals on this. And uh, again, it's not rocket science. If you ask people to list the things that people do that they trust, 100% of the time, they knock it out of the park. They, they name all these things in their own language. But what's really interesting is that uh, very few people in the world are as empathetic as they are genuine or are as honest as they are understanding and compassionate toward others. And I find that usually people are on one extreme or the other. They're usually very empathetic and therefore have a difficult time being straightforward or (laughs) they're autocratic and very direct and they rarely think about how the other person is feeling. Mm. So it's a simple concept, but I think if more people understand that and can apply it, I think the world would change significantly. I agree. For what my humble opinion is worth. Totally. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Cool. Uh, Wow. Thanks for sharing that. So purposeful education probably means something different to different people, um, but it is something that you're doing in MentorU and in Discovery Year. Why is that so important to you? Uh, I think it's very important to me because I saw the desperation on campus when I was working uh, at the university. I saw the desperation. I felt it. I felt that and I think in combination with the studies, the, so when I was studying counseling, I was drawn, I was inclined to, I was drawn towards things like positive psychology, which is the scientific study of human flourishing. And I was drawn towards these centered, person-centered approaches. And I felt that, um, you know, I'm kind of like, a, I'm in the, for anyone who's listening that is aware of the different kind of categories of, of psychology, I'm more on the existential side. I, I believe that it's incredibly important for people to have a purpose and a mission in order to be fulfilled. And that once you are able to put yourself in a situation where you feel like you're contributing in a meaningful way, and that's meaningful to you uh, in the world, then you can overcome a lot of things much more easily and you're more inspired and you're more motivated to do what uh, you need to do, even though that's hard sometimes. So I felt that there was this deep lack of purpose. And I would go back and like, I mentioned this in my TEDx and I was in my psychology courses, I was always a back row guy and I would just sit there, but I was still enthralled. I was very interested, but every single person, like 90% of students were on Facebook or they were on, they were streaming a sporting game or they were buying shoes or they were, you know, ordering food and they would just take a note. They were so well-trained to listen to this will be on the exam that they would just stop. That's the only time they would stop is they would make a note when they knew something was going to count for a grade. And so I was, um, I was really bothered by that. And I felt at the same time that I was, my life was changing because of the purpose that I felt. So, um, you know, I, th- I thought it was a, a major issue that has been reinforced that although it's not a huge data sample through our students, when they leave, just the ability to know that they're making a decision because it's something that they are curious about or they want to learn more. And uh, when they go into post-secondary, 100% of them, they do extremely well. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, Harvard has been suggesting a gap year, a purposeful, purposeful gap year to their students since 1973. Uh, they don't need the 45 or 50 or 60 grand, they have $40 billion. So they're more invested in seeing that person 
have a great career and contribute a million dollars back to the university in 20 years rather than the, the 50 grand they're going to get the next year. And that's not quite the same for most Canadian universities. And therefore, many of them do not promote actively the, the, the possibility of this gap year mm-hmm. um, concept. But I do, th- you see it, I think to me anyways, when I meet people and they're excited about something that they're learning, they're, they're, they're doing far better and they're overcoming more challenges. And I always tell families when I meet with them uh, that there are two things that I've seen personally in my experience and that the research shows are most important beyond anything else to to have success in life, but specifically in post-secondary. And the first is interest, that you actually want to be there and that you're motivated intrinsically to learn about whatever it is that you're learning. And the second is, you know, I call coping skills. So essentially it's adaptability, uh, a willingness and a a skill set that enables people to deal with challenges, whether they be interpersonal, um, programming, um, logistical, whatever the case may be, people are able to confront something, have a challenge, think critically about it, figure out another way around it, um, and maintain optimism and hope. And I saw very few students that had interest and very few students, as any professor will tell you, the, the conversations they have show pretty significant low levels of, of resilience in the students. And I say that not in a negative way toward the students. I'm not placing blame. I just think it's kind of a reality of our world today. And I, I want to help solve that yep. if I can. Yeah. And given that our education system is, is a complex beast, if I can say that, in a perfect world, what do you think that would look like? Like, what would, what would education be if it was more purposeful? Um, I think that a very simple question uh, answer to that is I, I suspect it's around 85% of the population who could benefit from more time in between high school and university or college. And I take that number from a longitudinal study done by um, Stats Canada. It's called the Youth in Transition Survey. It was uh, ended in 2010. And 83% of students uh, by the age of 25 had changed career paths from what they intended when they were 18. So I think that if 85% of people were taking time to do other things and experience life between high school and university, the success rate for those people generally would be much, much better once they land uh, on campus. That makes sense. Thank you for sharing that. So we like to make sure that we're not taking our careers too seriously. So what would you say is the most fun that you've had in your career so far? Oh, wow. The most fun I've had in my career I I guess I would have to define fun, but if I'm thinking top of mind right now, it's hard to beat traveling to a different country every day on a ship with thousands of people who are there to have a good time. And um, I I absolutely adored not only the fact that I was traveling, but just the nature of the job that I did was, was really well suited to me as a cruise director. So pure fun. I'd have to see cruise ships. Awesome. Very cool. Um, The next question is around, risk. And so a lot of people who are listening to our show are at some kind of transition point in their career, which involves risk at some point. What would you say is the biggest risk that you've taken in your career and how did it turn out? I would have to say starting my company, I think pretty naturally. Um, Although in retrospect to me, it was, it's funny. I think if you think something is risky in my, in my own case, if I were to perceive it as risky, um, that would seem weird because when I thought of what I wanted to do, it was, mm. there was no choice. It was no decision. Like if it meant moving into a smaller apartment, if it meant selling a car, like there was no decision for me. 
I have a partner, so she had to have her say in that, but there was no risk for me because I just, I couldn't even, I didn't even identify with that. But I think if you step back and look at it, that was, that was the biggest risk. I founded the company with, you know, eight or $10,000 of my own money. And most people would say, you know, if, you know, the kind of thing like, oh, if this was meant to be, then it would already exist. Or, you know, you're leaving a job. I heard that a lot. Oh, you might get a pension at, at the university and the nice pay. And um, so it was a risk, but I'm fortunate that people around me are, are familiar enough with me to know that I won't be swayed by their opinions uh, when I really care about something. So yeah, that was it. Awesome. Thank you. All right. And then the last one is what is the best piece of career advice that you have ever received? Oh, wow. Oh, I cherry pick so much in terms of advice. I, I really like to go to different people and, and listen to different things. Um, the, the one that comes top of mind right now is just very relevant. It's not in terms of my career, but in terms of entrepreneurship, the Jim Collins is a very famous writer. Um, and, uh, he wrote Built to Last and um, From Good to Great, oh, I think. Good to Great, yes, yeah. thank you. I knew someone would know it. Uh, in Built to Last, in one of the books, he talks about, he has this analogy of uh, the bus and the bus is the organization and the, the principal role of the founder or founders or initial employees is to invest all your time in making sure you get the right people on the bus and then the next percentage of time that's important is getting those people in the right seats and I see that time and again with organizations that I work with and with the people that are the, the amazing staff that we now have um, in our organization. And I think that that's so critical. If you are starting a company, you're going to have people working for you. It's easy to make those decisions quickly because things seem to be urgent. But I, I think it's really important. Uh, and likewise, if you're the person who's going into a job, um, go on the bus and check it out first before yeah. you sit down and look around. And people don't ask enough questions, I think, to organizations and people that are interviewing them for jobs. Makes sense. Wise words, for sure. Jay, where can people find out more about you and your work? The, the easiest place is probably our, our website. So the company is called MentorU. It's MentorU, the letter U, uh, .ca. And the Discover Your program is discoveryour.ca. Cool. We'll definitely toss links to those in the show notes to... Uh, get our dear listener headed your way. It's really cool what you're doing. I got to say. Thank it. you. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah. Amazing. Lisa, are you good? Yeah. Thank you so much again for this. This has been so much incredible information and, and conversation. Thank you both. Cool. Well, we'll call it a week at that. We'll call it a show there. Thanks so much for joining us again this week for the Career Builders podcast. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Lisa Pekosek. Our guest was Jay Gosselin, and we will be with you again soon. Bye.